Jonah has been chosen by God to be a prophet, which means he's supposed to go where God tells him to go, and he's supposed to say what God tells him to say. But when God instructs him to go to the important mission that God has for him in Nineveh, to try to save them from their evil ways, Jonah gets scared. Starts to think to himself, um, heck no, I'm going the other way. And he runs away. You might do the same thing if you were in Jonah's place. I know I might. Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and they had unleashed untold horror on the Israelites for years, looting and burning cities, causing massive destruction and death. Now, God won't accept Jonah's refusal to go there, so after some unmistakable prodding, the reluctant prophet finally goes to the dreaded city. He gives them this half-hearted, one-sentence sermon about being destroyed if they don't change their ways, and much to Jonah's surprise, it works. The Ninevites immediately repent of the evil they have done, and the king even makes a decree. A decree. All shall turn from their evil ways and from the violence that is in their hands. When God forgives them, is Jonah happy, excited? No, he's inconsolable. He wanted God to destroy them. He reminds me of a comic strip from the late cartoonist Doug Marlette. I don't know if you remember, he used to have a strip called Kudzu and one called The Preacher. And the main character was this preacher with the southern drawl, and one drawl, and one of the strips has the preacher on his knees praying, Smite them, Lord, smite them! Smite my own worst enemy! And a lightning bolt strikes the preacher. Jonah is his own worst enemy, too. He can't see the good that God is trying to do through him because he can't stand the thought of God forgiving someone he thinks doesn't deserve it. The whiny, pouty little prophet throws a hissy fit and with great melodrama proclaims that he might as well just die. See, he complains to God, that is why I fled to Tarshish in the first place. I knew you, God. I knew that you were a gracious God, that you're merciful, that you're slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and don't want to punish people. Darn you, I might as well die. Just kill me. Kill me now. Certainly she wasn't as dramatic about it, but a woman from a previous congregation reminded me a little bit of Jonah. She was in her 80s. She had been a Christian her whole life, as long as she could remember. She faithfully went to church. She taught Bible studies. She did community service whenever she could. She was kind to people. She tried to be a good person. One day I was leading an adult ed class, and we were talking about forgiveness, and this woman really surprised me. She said, I get upset when I hear about people becoming Christians in prison or later in life, just before they die. It just doesn't seem fair. Here I tried to be a good Christian my whole life, and they can just turn to God at the last minute and be forgiven. It just doesn't seem right. 
While we are grateful and know ourselves to be blessed by God's grace, the free gift of forgiveness and love, are we always comfortable with God offering those blessings to everyone? Are there times when maybe we might begrudge others of God's grace? Jesus tells his parables to help the disciples understand the radical nature of grace. He wants them to understand the difference between the way we see things and the way God sees things. We start comparing ourselves to one another in childhood, don't we? Especially when an older sibling is jealous of the love offered to the new baby, wondering if it somehow lessens the love that they're going to get. As the second child, I remember asking why there were so many more pictures and baby book entries for my older sister than for me. They always told me I was a beautiful baby, but there wasn't a lot of proof to look at. Of course, I had no concept of how busy they were when their lives included both of us. In an essay called The Second Child, Philip Gully wrote, when your first child drops a pacifier, you boil it for 10 minutes. When the second child drops the pacifier, you tell the dog to fetch it. <laughs> we hear people claiming that God is on their side in everything from a war to an argument to a football game. If God loves us and is beside us, we wonder how can God be on their side too? Let's look at that story Jesus tells us again. Jesus knows that his parable will upend people's assumptions, and he purposely tells it in an outlandish way to get their attention. Note that the laborers don't go to the vineyard looking for a job. The owner comes to the place where the day laborers gather. He has to go out again and again to get more and more at different times of the day, and then when he pays them, Everybody else is standing there when he pays those first, I mean, those last workers who came at five o'clock when he gives them as much as everybody else got all day. If the laborers who were there an hour got the full day's wages, surely the other people, especially the ones that came earlier, thinking, oh goody, I'm gonna get even more than was promised me. They begrudge the latecomers their fortune. It's just not fair. Then the vineyard owner asks, are you jealous because I'm generous? And their answer is, yep. The early workers know that they've been paid what they're promised, but it's scandalous to them for everybody to get the same thing. None of them was more important than the other. There's something about God's grace that is scandalous to us. God's economy is different from ours. If the vineyard owner and the parable had accountants, I imagine they were brushing off their resumes after this so they could work for a more reasonable boss. Lots of people who are successful or at least comfortable think that they are somehow better than those who are not as fortunate. On the other hand, God looks to the most vulnerable, the most marginalized people with seemingly the greatest compassion. If we consider the parable from the point of view of the last laborers to arrive for work, we realize they aren't lazy or unskilled. They were there waiting for jobs just like everybody else. When the owner goes back to the place where they gather, 
he approaches them and asks, why are you still here? And they said, no one has hired us. These are people that want to feed their children that night. They're still there, but no one had needed them until the vineyard owner could see their worth. Can you imagine the joy in their hearts when they are given a whole day's pay unexpectedly? Why would we begrudge anybody that kind of happiness? Like the kids who are picked last for dodgeball games, I know something about that. There are those in our world who are treated as less than and need to know that they have value. The vineyard owner sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't he? Including the folks that other people shun, avoid. Seeing the worth and the potential and the spark of God's image within them. If anything, the categories of value which we created to separate ourselves from such people seem to be reversed in Jesus' eyes. Jesus reaches out to those who find themselves on the margins of society, looked down upon, avoided, ignored altogether. He's especially generous to the poor and the outcast. He says the last will be first and the first will be last. Whenever I have experiences with families in developing countries or people right here in the U.S. who struggle to feed their families every day, I discover that they seem to understand the nature of God's freely given love. It is those who have everything they think they need who seem to believe they need to earn God's grace. You remember Martin Luther, a major voice of the 16th century Reformation. He said, we are not engaged by God in a life where, where those who work the hardest win the right to enter heaven, nor are we competitively engaged in producing good works in order to earn the right to be part of the kingdom. God's incredible and generous love is available to all of us. If only we could somehow replace the idea that some of us have way in the back of our heads as God as a finger pointer, as a record keeper, and listen to Paul's message in Ephesians, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not the results of works, so that no one may boast. If only we could learn to rejoice in a love that is not transactional. The short story writer Flannery O'Connor died at the age of 39 from lupus. Gifted and insightful, she once said that grace was the major theme of all of her stories. In a story called Revelation that she wrote just about a year before she died, the main character, Ruby Turpin, is the wife of a pig farmer. She is domineering and racist and a completely despicable character. One day as she sits in the waiting room of a doctor's office, she looks around and in her mind begins categorizing each person there according to her particularly bigoted perception of them. Mrs. Turpin strikes up a conversation with the one person who seems to her to be a pleasant person. Their conversation, though couched in polite language, is really a demonstration of Mrs. Turpin's self-righteousness and ugly judgmental spirit. 
The teenage daughter of the pleasant woman finally gets so disgusted by what she's hearing that she hurls her book at Mrs. Turpin, hitting her on the head just above the eyes. As the girl is being led away, she whispers to Mrs. Turpin, go back to hell where you came from, you old warthog. The teenager acts as, a rather, as rather harsh, but seems to serve as a wake-up call. Mrs. Turpin is unsettled by her comment and wonders if maybe God is sending her a message. As she reflects on it, she begins to see the shallowness of her life. One day, while she's hosing down the hog, she has this vision of all the people that she has classified, and there are so many different types that she's classified in her bigotry, and they're walking in groups to heaven, kind of like Jacob's ladder. The only thing is, every group goes before her. Mrs. Turpin had actually been proud of her way of categorizing people, and had considered herself to be quite perceptive. The rude teenage messenger helped her to see that something she valued in herself was something that needed cleansing and removing from her life. And not a gentle cleansing either. Maybe the comet pow powdered bleach that we use with scouring pads. The question that Jesus' parable and Jonah's story and O'Connor's story asks us is will we begrudge God's grace to others? Or will we celebrate God's vision of expansive grace? It takes more than just a decision to be that way. It takes asking God's help to do it every day. It can be tempting in a marriage to focus on all the little things that our partner has done that bother us when we could be reminding them of something we love about them every day. We can continue to point out when a friend or a coworker lets us down, or we could think about all the times that they helped us. We can nurse grudges, or we can count blessings. Whenever you and I offer another the amazing gift of forgiveness, or support and encourage someone who has failed, Whenever we welcome someone that the world has shut out, or we embrace the one who has known rejection or been treated as a failure, whenever we engage in expansive grace, others catch a glimpse of God breaking into our world. And when you and I realize that we too are hoping against hope that God will invite us into the vineyard, God comes looking for us, and there is pure joy, for we are all loved just as we are. Thanks be to God. Amen.